This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. See you all, Kaleo, good evening, glad to be together. Uh, as always, I'm also glad that we'll be sharing a, a meal here shortly. Whoever had the initial idea last week that we should have soup this week, brilliant, because soup, yeah, soup's, soup's feeling good right about now. I know, I know. And I'll, I'll, I'll move through this quickly so we can go, go eat soup. Uh, <laughs> I know I've been thinking about it all day. Emma, Emma brought hers at like four, and she was already ready to eat it, so... Uh, we'll, we'll get you there, okay? Um, at, the, at the risk of being repetitive, uh, over the past 10 weeks or so, in the few weeks that remain before Advent, we've been uh, pairing the homilies of the martyred Oscar Romero with the scripture passage that he preached that homily from, and then we kind of like set those down in front of us, and Aaron and I worked to discern what those two things, that passage and then his preaching, uh, might have for Kaleo and uh, we're here doing that again this evening. A couple things even as I was reflecting. I think this, is the, this might be my last Oscar Romero uh, sermon. So I was like, oh, okay, like, hey, bring it, bringing this to the end. And there were just like a few things that I was thinking about, kind of like why we chose this um, and why we admire um, Romero in particular. And it's this, this, this image or this embodied witness of Jesus that, that he had with his whole life, a, a man marked by humility and confidence, both together, um, and, and then one who was consistently calling people to a conversion and to an action, where like you would move together as one, the need to, to be converted to God, and then to a community of people who could work together would, would be like this vision. Um, and then there's like this one thing, this, is, this was the original reason I caught it, when I started reading some of his sermons, I'm like, okay, I got to figure out more what he's up to. It's just that like in the midst of all of his liberation seeking ways, he knows this to his core. He would say, let us not tire of preaching love. It is the force that will overcome the world. And, and to just experience that embodied witness, I guess, in the midst of so many reasons for him to not act lovingly, to abandon the hope that love could in fact overcome the world. And yet his, his like cry was, let us not tire of preaching that. Not, not love, love absent from the needs of the community, of the place, of the people, but let's keep going with that. Um, and then I resonated with the, the words of Henry Nouwen, who wrote the foreword, to the violence of love. So we're actually going through a book in our book club right now by Henry Nouwen, and it's, we hadn't even planned that overlap where Henry Nouwen wrote the foreword to the violence of love, and he revisited all of these sermons from Oscar Romero, and he read through them again before he wrote this foreword, and, and he says this. He says, it's painful sometimes to hear these words directed to myself. But since they come from a man as faithful as Oscar Romero, I may be able to let them come close and lead me to repentance and conversion. He writes, I am not an outsider to El Salvador's agony. I participate in it by continuing to adore the idols of money, political interest, and national security, and by not letting the God of Jesus Christ, who became poor for my sake, guide all of my life and all of my actions. 
Thus I am called to confess my role in the violence that Oscar Romero condemns, to ask her forgiveness for my sins against the people who are exploited and oppressed, and to be converted. And I feel like we've all had some version of that experience when we hear the words of Romero. And still, Romero, as he follows this, Jesus calls us for an action that leads to justice and peace. And so all of these things are tied up and they sit in me anyway in this way where I ask this question like, how then will we as the people of Kaleo participate in such a practice as this? Where we don't tire of preaching love. Where our action leads to justice and peace. Where, where and what and how will we do all of this? And so I think that's why we're in the midst of these uh, sermons from Romero. So before we, we pray and navigate uh, our passage for this evening, I think we're going to get some answers from the passage. Uh, that's the goal anyway. Otherwise, it would be stupid to have set the question up like that at the beginning, huh? Uh, and so he, here's how Romero insists we participate in the work of liberation, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at the passage. He says this. He says, Christ appeared with the signs of liberation, shaking off oppressive yokes, bringing joy to hearts, sowing hope, and this is what God is doing now in history. May that be so. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we're just so grateful to be together. We thank you that your presence is here among us, and we don't have to do anything to convince you to meet us, to reveal your love to us, to remind us that we are your children. We've sung so deeply already about how loved we are by you, God. And I, I pray that I don't even know sometimes, God, how we can actually receive that. But I pray that by an encounter with your loving spirit, we would receive that, that we are loved by you. And as we receive that, I pray that we would not tire of preaching love as we've already talked about, Lord. Again, I pray too, God, that you would just give me your words to speak this evening, that they would be words that are for you and from you, bring you glory and draw us deeper into communion with you. We love you. We need you. Help us to trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so our passage, which you don't know what it is yet still, so uh, seems, it seems fitting to me that this is the passage coming off the heels of, of midterm elections and our continual reflecting on just the, the way society is structured. Right, Voting forces us to think about the way things are structured around us. And so today we're looking at the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, one who was filled with the Spirit, and her Spirit-filled self composed a song. Uh, it's often called the Magnificat, if you're into that kind of thing. Here's how N.T. Wright reminds us to think about these words from Mary. He says, it's one of the most famous songs in Christianity. It's been whispered in monasteries, chanted in cathedrals, recited in small remote churches by evening candlelight and set to music with trumpets and kettle drums by Johann Sebastian Bach. Here is Mary's song of praise, her Magnificat from Luke 1, 46 through 55. She says this, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. 
He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Quite, quite a song. Quite, quite a song. I don't want to do a full-scale deep dive into the context of this passage, but I'm going to set it up a bit, okay? We've got Mary here. The mother of Jesus, Mary, is young, right? She's engaged to be married. She's a woman of poverty, and she's visited by a messenger of the Lord, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like, that seems early, right? But there, it's happening. She's tasked with birthing the Son of God, can you imagine? That's what the angels said to her, right? It's like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so with the fetus of Jesus still in her womb, she crafts these words we just read. The most beautiful but also quite unique words of praise. So imagine her composing such a thing as this, speaking such a thing as this, singing such a thing as this, in light of all of that. And then there's this role that the Spirit of God plays, a central role in all of this. There's the Spirit of creation, right? The Spirit of God was present at the creation of all things, but there's this Spirit of prophecy present as well. And so here's how kind of these things go together. Scholar Roger Stronstad puts it like this. He says, this dramatic outburst of charismatic or prophetic activity is best interpreted against the background of intertestamental Judaism. Okay, so pause there for a second, right? Okay, I will explain. So the intertestamental period is the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? The Old Testament comes to an end and like we wait some 400 years and then we're like, oh, stuff's happening again. Right? So if you ever wonder why God's taking a long time in your life, hey, at least it's not the intertestamental period. Okay? Right? So, so then so we have this background of that in Judaism, right? The, the prophets have essentially spoken, right? And then that kind of ends and we wait in, the, in between. And so the things we read from that that intertestamental period, it would be like extra canon, if you will, right? So you, so you might be familiar with some of the things like First and Second Maccabees or whatever, um, that sort of thing. So that literature of that time, it's characterized this way by, by a diversity and a witness to a threefold perspective of the Spirit. So here's kind of how they're talking about the Spirit, right? Maybe lowercase s and like trying to be a you know, uppercase S, because they're not sure what the role of the Spirit is quite yet. And so here, here's, here's the perspective. In Judaism, the Spirit, which there's all kinds of conversation in Judaism, right, about the Spirit of God still, the Spirit is almost always the Spirit of prophecy, right? And, and when you hear prophecy, I want you to hear like prophet, right? Not like, not like predictor of exactly something is going to happen this way. Not like somebody who's like reading the tea leaves or whatever and like trying to make sense of things. The, the prophets, the spirit of prophecy is 
calling out things, right? That things are not as they should be. They, they know the way they should be because that, that's the spirit of prophecy. This is the way God said it would be and things are not the way God said it would be, so I'm gonna say something about it until it becomes what God said it would be, right? That's the spirit of prophecy. The second thing he says is this prophetic gift of the spirit had ceased with the last of the writing prophets, okay? So this, this idea of this, like this 400-ish span of time where the spirit of prophecy was dormant. And now we're reading about Mary, who has the gift of the spirit in her prior to even giving birth to Jesus. And the spirit is being awakened again. And he says the third thing then is that the revival of the activity of the spirit is expected only in the messianic age. That is the, the age of the Messiah who will come, right? Because the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah to come and so at the end of the writing of the prophets, the work of the spirits kind of like chill. And then they're like, it will return, though, when the Messiah is here. Now think about Mary gifted the spirit, announcing these words while having Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for present in her womb. What does this mean? Mary is a prophet, and this gift of the spirit of prophecy is being renewed in her. It's going to be fulfilled to the mostest, right, in Jesus. And she's an image of the inauguration of the messianic age, of the Messiah to come. Which is all, like, awesome, but also remember who Mary is. Remember where the spirit of prophecy begins to show up again. Remember where the one who starts to call out, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is what God always had in mind. Let me tell you about it while she sings a praise song to God. Okay, this is getting good. I like this. Uh, scholar Justo Gonzalez, he writes in a book called The Story Luke Tells, which is a very accessible book, by the way, and I highly recommend it. Uh, you should check that out. He says this about uh, Mary's song. He says, but in truth, the theme is not just the praise of God. And I and pause right there, right? Because I think that's sometimes what we can think about this section in Luke, that this is a praise song to God. It even says and in the NLT, the little thing up above says Mary's song of praise, right? So, so don't, he's saying don't get in your mind that this is just praising God, but rather the praise of God who is the Lord of great upheavals he says. And this upheaval is known as the great reversal. So, so many scholars will talk about the way that Mary sings here as the great reversal. And this great reversal, Gonzalez says, is both religious and social. And that's what she's naming, which is why she's naming some crazy things. We're going to be like, whoa, she's saying what? We'll look at that in a second. Because the great reversal has always been God's intention. And God's mercy in Mary's song is described in view of God's original promise, which was, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's like what God's been saying all along. I like to call it the witness of God, right? 
which is literally what's happening here with this baby that Mary is about to birth because what is she going to name him and call him? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Like this is the thing that God's been doing all along. God's been promising that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's God's purpose then that will always turn the status quo upside down. That's, that's this reversal that the spirit of prophecy present in Mary is articulating that will be embodied in the lived witness of Jesus. And so yet again, the incarnation of Jesus, right? The coming of Jesus to the earth, God with skin on. And then the future coming of Jesus, right, as we wait, reminds us that this turning and reversing is still unfolding in the here and now. It continues to turn. It continues to flip over. It continues to reverse continues to experience upheaval, right? That's like the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. Things are not as they should be. That's what we're still saying, right? And yet we can still identify where they are, the things of God. So within the power of God's desired relationality with his people, remember, I will be your God and you will be my people, isn't some like massive hierarchical structure, right, where we're like really far away and he just like floats above and tells you where to go. This is a God who comes right down to be with us. Do you want to know how much enters the womb of Mary? Like how much more relational could God be than the inauguration of this incarnation? So here we see then in Mary, in Jesus, in what God's doing in real time, what does this invitation to join the great reversal look like? What does it mean to seek the kingdom of love and equity and justice and reconciliation the way that Mary sings? But still, in an ironic twist, Mary sings as if the wrongs of history have already been made right. Did you catch that when we read it the first time? I'm going to go back and read it. I don't even have it. That's not even what I was going to do. I just got to read it again. Mary responds this way. She says, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abram and his children forever. Isn't that crazy? She's, she's saying this has already been done when Jesus is still in her womb. Because she has the spirit of prophecy that says this is going to be done this way because it's not done yet. She believes that it's going to happen, so she sings it into existence, I guess. Okay. So how might a community of people respond to such a song of that? Right? Like, it's a... I'm excited. I think you might be semi-excited with me. You're like, this is okay. This is kind of cool. But like, how, what do we do with this, right? All right, let's be inspired by Romero. 
Here's what he preaches. He's preaching on this passage here, and here's what he says. He says, everyone struggles for justice. Everyone who makes just claims in unjust surroundings is working for God's reign, even though not a Christian. The church does not comprise all of God's reign. God's reign goes beyond the church's boundaries. The church values everything that is in tune with its struggle to set up God's reign. Right? And when he speaks the language of God's reign, it's the language of the kingdom. The reign and rule of Jesus right, is the kingdom of God. That's God's reign. He says, a church that tries to keep itself pure and uncontaminated would not be a church of God's service to people. The authentic church is one that does not mind conversing with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners as Christ did, and with Marxists and those of various political movements in order to bring them salvation's true message. So what's the rub? Romero seems to go on. He says this. Some want to keep a gospel so disembodied that it doesn't get involved at all in the world it must save. Christ is now in history. Christ is in the womb of the people. Christ is now bringing about the new heavens and the new earth. Christ became a man of his people and of his time. He lived as a Jew. He worked as a laborer of Nazareth. And since then, he continues to become incarnate in everyone. If many have distanced themselves from the church, it is precisely because the church has somewhat estranged itself from humanity. But a church that can feel as its own all that is human and wants to incarnate the pain, the hope, the affliction of all who suffer and feel joy, such a church will be Christ-loved and awaited Christ-present. And that depends on us. Let that soak in for a moment. Let me read that last part to us. If, if many have distanced themselves from the church, it is precisely because the church has somewhat estranged itself from humanity. But a church that can feel as its own all that is human and wants to incarnate the pain, the hope, the affliction of all who suffer and feel joy, such a church will be Christ loved and awaited Christ present. Romero preached this sermon during the season of Advent. And when I was wrestling out if I wanted to use these sections, I was like, ah, well, maybe I'm rushing us into Advent. But I'm going to give us some Advent thoughts, right? A little Advent pre-prep, if you will. Let our, let our heads and our hearts begin to prepare for the season in which we welcome the coming of Jesus who has come, who is coming, and will come again. So here's how he ties his sermon into the season of Advent, right? And Advent means coming, right? It's just talking about the coming of Jesus. The Christian knows that Christ has been working in humanity for 20 centuries and that the person that is converted to Christ is the new human being that society needs to organize a world according to God's heart. Advent should admonish us to discover in each brother and sister we greet, in each friend whose hand we shake, in each beggar who asks for bread, in each worker who wants to use the right to join a union, in each peasant who looks for work in the coffee groves, the face of Christ. Then it would not be possible to rob them, to cheat them, 
to deny them their rights. They are Christ, and whatever is done to them, Christ will take as done to him. This is what Advent is, Christ living among us. That's, that's why we pass the peace, right? As if just for a moment in time, we gather together in a way in which we stand up and look one another in the eye, and that face that we greet we imagine is the face of Christ, the face of Jesus, not just because that does something in us, like, oh, that feels good to be seen, to be known, but also because the more we do this, it won't be possible for us to rob and cheat and deny others their rights because they are Christ. We begin to think so differently about how we see one another. And so here we have an, an image of the embodied gospel. Will we live out such an embodiment? Let that question hang too. So back to Mary's Magnificent for a moment. Remember, it's situated at the beginning of Luke's gospel, right? And so Stephanie Crowder reminds us of this important detail. She says, Luke did not compose this song which I, that just like, that stopped me in my tracks when I read that. Like, that's right, Mary did. <laughs> she writes this, it is a hymn of the Anawim. It's a word, Hebrew word for the, the poor or the poor of the Lord. She says, this is a hymn of the poor of the Lord fashioned for God's use. The poor of the Lord was a designation for children, widows, foreigners, and others who were economically and socially impoverished. So according to the hymn that Mary wrote, right, she says, The Lord uplifts the poor and lowly and brings down the rich and mighty. Quite a powerful hymn from the teenage Mary. And so in typical Romero fashion, he has a thing or two to say about the poor and the rich. He says, the person who feels the emptiness of hunger for God is the opposite of the self-sufficient person. In this sense, rich means proud. Rich means even the poor who have no property but who think they need nothing, not even God. This is the wealth that is abominable to God's eyes. What the humble but forceful Virgin Mary speaks of he sent away empty-handed the rich, those who think they have everything, and filled with good things the hungry, those who have need of God. I love the way he positions us to think about the rich and the poor. So here's why I figured we could pretend today is the season of Advent, because then Romero says this. He says, Advent is not just four weeks preparing for Christmas. Advent is the church's life. Advent is Christ's presence as he uses us and all the effort meant to bring about God's true reign, telling humanity that Isaiah's prophecy is now fulfilled, Emmanuel, God with us. That is the church's life, to continue proclaiming that that's true, that we follow a God who is with us. So Mary invites us to consider that. She invites us to consider also that we're all pregnant with the possibility of new life. We're all pregnant with the possibility of becoming more than we are because God is 
with us, as the prophecy proclaims. But Mary takes it a step further and she says, and God is in us. And so Mary sings because she has new life in her. And she's about to gift it to the world through her. And so we get to ask the question, will we join her in singing and birthing a God who is with us in the world? Will we, as I read Romero saying earlier on, shake off oppressive yokes, bring joy to hearts, sow hope, right? That's what Mary's proclaiming as well. Will we join her in the singing and the birthing of a God who is with us? And so as we finish and prepare to give Jesus the final word in all of this, I realize I asked a lot of questions as I went back through what I'd put together. And then I was reminded how often God answers my questions much more slowly than I'd prefer. And then I was like, yeah, I always struggle to trust the slow work of God. But I continue to try and accept this slow becoming. And I think we all do. We do it collectively. We do it in a space together. Because as God does, in fact, move and speak, when God so decides, I'm finding that slowly and softly is an invitation for me to listen more closely. So in light of all of this that I've brought forth, listen. I don't know what Jesus has to say to you individually. I don't even know what Jesus has to say to us collectively, believe it or not. And neither does Aaron. Sometimes we have a good idea. Sometimes we have a next step to take, but we all get to do that together still. And so the question still lingers, what is Jesus saying to you in light of all of this? It could be one tiny little thing, and I think that I, that's, I guess, what I'm learning to, to not let be. Uh, my, my hope all the time is that it would come in some big massive movement that God would just speak slowly and softly and that's an opportunity to listen more closely. So let's listen to Jesus. Let Jesus have the last word, and then Breton's going to come up and sing for us. Let's hold that space, though. Jesus, thank you for a, a moment of stillness. Thank you for a moment to wait. To find ourselves in your loving presence. And through here, spirit who is with us and in us. 
to help us hear and know you. So we ask, Stephen, one more time in this space. Jesus, in light of everything that we have been encountering here today, whether singing or praying or offering peace to one another or living generously, what do you want us to know? Help us to hear you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God of relationship. Modeled in your mysterious being, but also granted to us through your spirit, shown to us in this image of, of Mary holding Jesus in her womb, filled with your spirit there gifted us in the, the life lived by Jesus. You are just a God who desires to be close. So we thank you for that. We thank you that you love us. In your name we pray. Amen. If this message encouraged you, let us know or share it with someone you know. For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at kaleophx.com.